This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Before we begin the talk proper with all its pros and prolixity, I wanted to get to the heart of the matter by sharing with you a short poem by Father Gerard Manley Hopkins. It goes like this. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow, for rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh fire coal, chestnut falls, finches wings, landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow, and plow, and all trades, their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter, original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle dim, he fathers forth whose beauty is past change, praise him. Now, I, I wanted to start here with a poem because you know the danger here is me giving a talk here in prose is that we're gonna lose the entire point, right? Um, if this is your first time hearing the poem, uh, I wanna call your attention to the paradox with which Hopkins ends the poem. Beauty in this world comes in large measure from variety. To bring the point of our context here in Kansas, uh, the accusation, and I'm from the East Coast, so please don't mob me right now, just wait till the end and then you can throw me from the building. The accusation I often hear leveled against the Midwest is the monotony of the landscapes. Endless fields of wheat, endless fields of corn, endless fields of soy, endless vistas of brown in autumn and winter. Now, as you and I both know, this is simply not true. I think, for instance, of the starting, startling revelation of driving through the Flint Hills on a March evening. The canopy of sky splayed out in all the palette of, the, uh, of rainbow. The, the prairie fire, right, in distant fields. See Dr. Hogg's also in the audience. Some of the times that prairie fire gets out of control and then you run over and try to tamper it down before it sets your house on fire. But anyway, other farmers who know what they're doing, setting that prairie fire off on the ridge. And uh, it's, you know, there's this beautiful effect, right, of, of the, the sun in, in a dazzling array, prairie fire. Uh, the other beautiful thing, and again, people call it a weed, uh, but if you're familiar with henbit, right, there's this purple weed that, that sort of takes over um, fallow land and these croplands, and just a whole field of purple, right? Um, and so you have the prairie fire, and it's, it's amazing. So to return to the point, all of this beauty comes in some great measure from its variegation. God, on the other hand, possesses in fullness beauty, and his beauty is not changing. This is the paradox of beauty. In created particulars, its perfection arises in some measure from its variety, right? Otherwise, you know, I see a, a few people who are not six feet apart because they're in couples, right? Sorry, Roy and Emily for calling you out, right? But, uh, you know, you don't look at to the potential spouse and, and look for a unchanging sameness, right? Otherwise, you know, a, uh, a, a you know, tan colored beach ball, right, with its perfect regularity, right? All the sides are equally distant from each other. I love the fact that it, it's just so one, right? That, that's not it, right? And of course, God isn't a beach ball either. But what I'm trying to say is that 
the particulars, right, the beauty arises from, in some measure, the variety in the creator, who in addition to being truth and goodness is also the transcendental of unity. Beauty is singular and unchanging. Already you can see in this talk, um, I'm making a number of philosophical and aesthetic assumptions. For example, the, uh, the Hellenic idea of the transcendentals and the God at least of the philosophers. A being or rather being itself where one finds transcendentals in themselves. I understand that there are many who do not share these assumptions. I make no presumptions. I should add before we proceed any further that there will be a question and answer session at the end. And I welcome inquiry, right? You know, there's a lot of presumptions going on here about the nature of reality and the nature of God uh, that, pre, that are preliminaries to everything I'm about to say. Uh, and moreover, I would, I would emphasize that this is not just an empty invitation, right? I relish in the classroom and, and here those moments where I can say with honesty that I don't know, and I invite you and myself on a path of discovery. And this leads me in some measure to the, to the man who's the inspiration, at least for the title of the talk, uh, Joseph Pieper. Uh, so if you, if, for those of you who are familiar with Joseph Pieper, I believe the, the more famous book, of course, is, is Leisure, the Basis of Culture. But he has another one called Only the Lover Sings, about art and contemplation. And we'll talk about that in a second. But one of the things that, that Pieper talks about in Leisure, the Basis of Culture is the fact that, you know, and this is going back to the scholastic tradition, that wonder is the prerequisite to wisdom. And so wonder, then, is that recognition of something that we do not know, something that is not immediately obtainable by us, right? And it fills us with desire and longing. If we lack desire and longing, and we just recognize the fact that we don't know, right? That, that's the, the sin that we call despair. But for those of us who have longing, right? This leads, this acknowledgement of our own littleness, right? Of our own lack of knowledge, leads rather to, to wonder. And these are sort of the, the two paths of knowledge that we can uh, comprehend of in this life. And very briefly, before we move on to Pieper, I, I want to bring up John Henry Newman, where he talks about this in university teaching, where he talks about two ways of pursuing knowledge, right? That there can be a mere accumulation of knowledge, right? Fact upon fact. And I believe that all of us to this day are probably carrying an electronic device in our pockets or somewhere around our person, right? That leads us to suspect that we know all things, right? that we can just ask it a question, hey Siri, hey Alexa, hey Google, right? And that the knowledge accumulates upon itself. Uh, of course, I, I, I risk actually saying those trigger uh, phrases because then all of our phones are gonna be like, yes, how can I help you? So thankfully it didn't do that. Uh, but what John Henry Newman says is that there is another pursuit of knowledge which is not a mere accumulation, right? But rather is a deepening and a broadening. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna put that aside for a second and we can, we can save that for later, but I wanna turn um, to Pieper. So I, I don't think it escaped you that the title of this talk is a quotation. It's a, a loose translation of St. Augustine's Latin phrase, cantare amantis est. Uh, now I actually know that there's at least one Latin scholar sitting over there at the table nodding his head very vigorously, uh, who knows that, that this actually, it, 
that the peepers turn of phrase, right, is not a very good translation. First of all, um, Amantis is a great example, by the way, Rob, right, of the genitive of characteristic, right, for those of us who, who really want to get down to the Latin grammar of it. And second, the translation takes a lot of liberty. Strictly speaking, what Augustine has said is that it is characteristic of the lover to sing. My translation is an English rendering, rendering uh, of Joseph Pieper's German, whose title, who titled this small collection originally, uh, Nur Liebenden Sing, right? So if anyone here is already familiar with Joseph Pieper, Pieper uh, I presume it is from, as I said, uh, Leisure the Basis of Culture. Um, so for anyone who's read that book, I want to go out and, and, or sorry, sorry, for anyone who has not read this book, I want you to go out and get this book. Um, but I'm not going to be just rehashing the ideas either in Leaves of the Basis of Culture or Only the Lover Sings. Um, what I want to do here is, is actually, in fact, complete the book in some way. This is rather presumptive of me to say this, right? Um, but what, what Pieper says in, in Only the Lover Sings, in the first essay, is that there are three ways in which we can enter into acts which are um, ends in and of themselves, contem uh, contemplative acts. And we'll talk about that again in a second. But the three ways he looks at are philosophy, theology, and the arts, right? Now, I think uh, most of us would understand, right, from a religious perspective, understanding how philosophy is contemplative, right? Thinking on the, the nature of the existence of God, right? We can understand theology as a mode of contemplation in particular Christian revelation. So in the Catholic context, contemplating the, you know, the seven sacraments. But it's harder for us to understand the, the fact that Pieper puts in, in equal measure the ability of the human intellect to enter into contemplative communion with the divine through art. The difficulty I find with the book, and it's not really the difficulty with what Pieper had set out to do, it's just merely a collection of, of talks that he had given, is that he only talks about, uh, about art in, in terms of the visual arts and in terms of music. And, and the great art, the great human art, right, the, the logos encompassing art of poetry is forgotten in this. So, so a lot of what I'm going to talk about here, I hope in some way, at some day, when my children grow up and are not waking me up in the middle of the night all the time, to sit down and actually uh, complete sort of my, my poetic uh, postlude to Pieper. So uh, to return to my point, in Pieper's book, um, music, right, is understood as this sort of way of entering into contemplation of the divine. And music, we have to understand, is something that is plays with speech and silence, that is, uh, in hell, as C.S. Lewis said, right, there is, there is endless noise. But in, in heaven, right, silence exists, but silence exists in its beauty and its fullness, right? The, these magical moments of anticipating what is said and what is not said. Okay, so I, I want to uh, put a pause on that, and, and I want to talk, I, I really do need to address a point that I made earlier about the servile and the liberal arts. That is what I had already said about things that are ends in themselves and then things that are ends which are directed to other things. Um, now, there are, of course, you know, in addition to the visual arts, to poetry and to music, a whole other class of arts practiced by humanity 
that we do not mean by meditative art, right? So this very podium itself, right, you could say is in some ways an art, right? The construction of it. Um, but what we also have to understand is that all of these are directed towards some ends. And I'll talk about that in a second. No, no, no let's talk about that now, and then I'll come back to this. Um, you know, we, I, I see a lot of students who probably already understand this, but um, just to make sure we're understood, right? Um, you know, with Aristotle and what Pieper's talking about, we talk about the four causes of things, right? Uh, we talk about material, efficient, formal, and final causes, right? So I hold in my hand an Expo marker, right? Um, in some ways, it can be seen as an artistic production of, of human nature, right? Uh, it has a formal cause, it's blue, it's of a certain dimension, it's cylindrical, right? It has an efficient cause that is uh, somewhere, someone, probably not someone themselves, probably there's robots involved at some point in today's manufacturing, which when you think about manufacturing, it actually means it's constructed with the hand, so it's no longer manufacturing. But someone put this together, right? And it has... Uh, a material cause as well, right? It's made up of uh, alcohol, which is what allows the, the marker to erase, right? It's made up of the ink, which is what you see, right? But it also has a, a final cause, right? Which is to write, right on um, that whiteboard way over there that I can't reach right now. So you just imagine me writing on it, right? And that's the end of it. Now I could use it for other things. For example, if this book wasn't sitting up properly, I could I could put it up there, but that's not really its final cause. But always with the marker and with so many other things in life, they don't exist as ends in and of themselves. And in sort of uh, the Aristotelian and scholastic view, the, the best things in life, right, are things that are ends in and of themselves. And we have to understand that, that you yourself and the arts, the arts by here, I mean music and the visual arts and, uh, and poetry, right, they are ends in themselves. And, um, you know, I, what I want to take here, and, and we'll see if there's a moment at the end to read the whole of it, but wanna, I want to stop for a moment and read you a passage from a poem by W.H. Uh, Auden. So this poem is uh, Auden's memorial to William Butler Yeats. And I really wish I had the whole poem memorized, but um, here are just uh, six lines that I think gets the essence of what I'm trying to communicate. For poetry makes nothing happen. It survives in the valley of its own making, where executives would never want to tamper, flows on south from ranches of isolation and the busy griefs, raw towns that we believe and die in. It survives a way of happening, a mouth. And again, again, this is the, the poverty of what I'm trying to do, because if I was just here trying to prove my point, perhaps what would be most efficient would be just to stand up here and recite some of the best poetry that's ever been read or, 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 or recited. But nonetheless, uh, there, there's what I have to say about that. And uh, I was just actually, I don't know, is anyone listening to Father Mike Schmitz's Bible in a Year podcast? Yeah, a few hands coming up. Okay. Uh, someone who feels professionally obligated to be listening to it. But there's a wonderful moment. Uh, in the the podcast this morning, which I'm going to uh, digress here, but I actually it's a note to digress here. In Psalm 18, we find this phrase of the psalmist on God's relationship to the human person, right? And why does God do all these good things for the human person? And in the Latin, it says, 
quia diligit me, right? Because he loves me, right? So, so God does this for us, right? Not because he needs another person for his pickup basketball team, not because he needs someone to build him a finer church, right? Uh, God does this for you in and of yourself. And in some way, it's our way of, of subcreating, right? That is what, what J.R.R. Tolkien talked about, right? Our ability to create. Now, I can't create, you know, all of these things. It's the, the proverbial joke if you've never heard it, right? Nietzsche comes to God and says, you know, it's not that impressive. He took some dirt and he made a man, right? And then God says, okay, well, let's see you do better, right? And, and so Nietzsche goes and he grabs some dirt and he starts to shape it up. And then God looks down and says, get your own dirt, right? So it's this idea, right, that we can't make all these things, right? That, but what we can return is our imaginative and creative excellence, right? So this is what's going to participate in that. And I want you to hold that in your mind as something that we're going to talk about, this idea of the human person imaging God, the creator, through our artistic act. All right, so we've reached this point now where you're wondering um, if I didn't mean to talk only about Joseph Pieper, and you're asking yourself if I only included Augustine in the title because it's where Pieper uh, got it from the book. And, and that's perhaps a good accusation, but I, I want to prove you false in, in what I'm going to talk about here. There's so much that we can say about St. Augustine. I, I think I talked to a few of you ahead of time, and it seems like there's, there is some sort of, um, you know, we hear of Augustine, right? We know that he wrote the Confessions, uh, but I, I want to take a, a second now uh, to make sure that we have some sort of context of his relationship to poetry. And uh, so I'm going to be talking in particular about some of the sermons of Augustine and what he has to say about the Psalms and poetry and its particulars to salvation. But I, what I want to make sure of is that you understand his authority to speak on this. So Augustine's uh, living in the, in the late 4th and into the early 5th century. He's seeing the overthrow of the Roman Empire. Uh, as a trained rhetorician, one of the things I want you to understand is that while he himself is not known for a great amount of uh, poetry, of the four great Latin fathers, uh, it's rather Ambrose who's come down to us. So Ambrose of Milan, who, who was there with the conversion of Augustine, right, who's come down to us as sort of the one really introducing uh, sort of the Western Christian poetic tradition and the hymnody that he, he had sung around the, the cathedral in Milan and all these things. But nonetheless, if you go to the Confessions, that great work of Augustine, and you look and count up the number of textual references to the Bible, the, the number one reference you are going to find is to the Psalms. Augustine, you know, at the Augustinian order would eventually take its inspiration from him. And he himself, I think I see a few of my ex-students in the room who read the Confessions with me, we talked about this, is that, uh, you know, he had read the life of St. Anthony uh, of the desert. Uh, he had decided upon a rule of life. And the foundation of that rule of life was not sort of sitting there and reading the historical books of the Bible, but rather was, was centered around uh, the recitation of the Psalms on a weekly schedule, right? So he's living and breathing the poetry of the Bible, um, as I said. So this through line of references to, to, the, to the Psalms, right, provide St. Augustine with the words that are his launching pad. And as a professor of rhetoric, I'd also say, it's, it's not like giving political speeches today. Right. As a rhetorician, you can actually do this, and that was one of my things in graduate school, was sitting there in the early days of graduate school doing metrical analyses of rhetoric. That is, Latin rhetoric is itself very much poetic, right? So every sentence is going to end with a formal 
versification structure that signals is this epic, is it comic, is it wherever it's going? All right, so, and again, um, as another aside, this is, on, again, uh, another digression of, of Callahan's, um, I should whet your appetite to consider, again, the importance of the Psalms by pointing out that not only does Augustine reference the Psalms so prominently, but Jesus himself, you know, on, on the cross is not sort of going through the historical books of the Bible, right? He's going instead in these last words through the Psalms, through the poetry, right? And these are the prayers that he prays as he accomplishes salvation history. All right, so another Callahan digression safely navigated uh, back to Augustine. So I want to look at, as I said, at two particular Psalms of Augustine that both reflect on the opening of uh, Psalm, or sorry, both two particular sermons of St. Augustine that both reflect on the opening of Psalm 149. And that Psalm begins uh, in the Latin, cantate de dominum canticum novum, or, or as we might say in English, sing to the Lord a new song. And if that sounds familiar to you from whatever church service you might have been familiar with or reading the, uh, the, the, the Bible, right? This is not just Psalm 149. There are actually three Psalms that open in this manner, but it's Psalm 149 that Augustine's focusing on. Uh, now, Sermon 336 of Augustine is this sermon that he gives on the dedication of a new church. And he recalls for his congregants the inspiration of Psalm 149. So for those of you who don't know the context of Psalm 149, it was this uh, psalm that was sung at the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. As St. Augustine puts it, the, the literal context of the song is that a new song befits a new temple. In a Christological reading, St. Augustine says a new song befits not just a new temple, but a new commandment, right? So moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So in some ways, the Psalms anticipate this. But St. Augustine goes on to say, what is this new commandment? This new commandment is love. And as he says, furthermore, it is even more fitting and congruent because now we have a song, right, for commandment that demands song. So the law, in some ways, is less congruous to singing than a commandment which is centered on love itself, right? That is only the lover sings. It is proper, it is fitting for the lover sings. And so if God is love, then our response in entering into that love must be to sing. And I'll be clear about this, right? It's not like God is love, therefore I want you to go to your room and write a 500-page theological treatise on the nature of love. No, God is love, you, you, and you exuberantly will sing forth as you enter into this love. Same way that, uh, I don't know, I see a few people sitting close together. I'm sure that none of you want each other with treatises, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe some philosophical treatises on why you should date me. But I will at least note that, that I won my own wife over with a poem. All right, but uh, I believe it is worth looking closer not at just Sermon 336, which is more of an aside, uh, but this very long exegetical sermon where, again, uh, how often do we not do this today? St. Augustine gives this entire lengthy sermon, uh, Sermon 34, uh, just on this first verse of the psalm. So what, what, what this sermon does is it helps us understand the logic of his conclusion, and what this says is it is an invitation for what I'm going to spend the last part of this talk about which is about how singing concords with human nature. 
So what Augustine says, uh, and this is my translation of the Latin, a new man knows a new song. Singing is a thing that is proper to rejoicing. And in Latin, this is uh, hilaritas, and you don't want to be deceived by that. Hilaritas is not someone who has lost control. Hilaritas is someone who has their cup over full and brimming, right? That is, uh, so Augustine's not saying hilaritas like you, you're irrational. He's saying hilaritas because grace has been poured into the person to the point that it's too much. Okay, so as Augustine's saying, right, it is proper to sing, or sorry, it's proper, singing is proper for those who rejoice. And if we consider it more thoroughly, it is a thing proper to love. The man, therefore, who knows a new life to love knows a new song to sing. And I can't, that, that paragraph is one of the most beautiful things, and, and I, I perhaps me and my digressions has butchered it, right? But the logical order of that, right? That, that joy in the human person is love. And joy examples itself in singing. And, and I'm gonna um, break aside once again to say, I mean, we see this, right, in musicals, right? And this is a, a sort of other reality, right? Where something like, he really likes me, and oh my gosh, I have to sing about it, right? That's the only response that, now to us, if that happens in real life, everyone gets awkward and weird about it, right? Um, but when you think about it, it's kind of the life that we wish that we could lead. All right, uh, so this brings me to, to the one of the last big points of the talk, right? This is, what is man? So I would invite a, a sort of criticism now of everything that I've been saying. That is, everything so far has been constructed upon certain fundamental assumptions about the nature of the human person, right? That we're invited to love and that love results in singing. So I cannot proceed upon uh, my central claim that poetry is a radical part of human nature that is radical in the literal sense of the Latin meaning of radical, right? So not like what you kids mean, like that's so radical, man. Or actually that's the 90s kids. I don't know what the 2020s kids say. But the literal meaning of radical is that it goes to the root of it, right? The very root of human nature lies with poetry. Without outlining for you uh, right now some of my own assumptions about human nature. So let us ask then in the poetry of the psalmist, what is man that thou art mindful of him? First, I shall assume that man is a creature composed of body and soul. Further, rather than some Hallmark greeting card definition of soul, right, uh, and, and certainly not that Pixar movie definition of soul, right, I mean the Aristotelian conception that the soul is the living form of the body, the animating principle. You cannot weigh it, you cannot see it, but you can know that a body has been separated from its soul because it is no longer merely corporeal, that is, the body is no longer merely, merely corporeal, but is now only a corpse. To this I add that all living creatures have souls. There are distinct faculties of soul by which the ancients distinguished vegetative from animal souls capable of sensation and motion. Now the discovery by modern science that plant life has sensory and even some motor capabilities, um, it only destroys the application of Aristotle's framework framework, I would argue, not the framework itself of these different faculties of soul. So realizing there are many undergraduates to whom all of this might sound foreign, um, I'm going to take a second now to, to make this a little bit more clear. 
Now, grass has what Aristotle would call a nutritive soul, an animating principle of life where it takes its nutrients, expels waste, grows, and reproduces. A dog, on the other hand, has a sensitive soul. It can smell bacon, has motive power to pursue the sensation, can see the bacon, can hear me tell him not to eat my bacon, can feel my hand as I try to pull him away from the bacon, and finally, the dog can taste the bacon, which stores a sensory memory that says to him that bacon tastes good. This is where you're supposed to laugh. The human person is not other than the grass and the dog, right? That is not completely different, right? I too eat. Uh, as you continue to get older, I'd be aware about growing as you continue to eat. Uh, but we too eat, right? We too sense. Like the dog, we have five senses by which we come to know and move about the world. But the human person also has an intellectual operation to its soul. And this, as they say, makes all the difference. For the nutritive and sensitive soul dies with the body. It's fulfilled its function. When there is nothing to grow and nothing to sense, the soul of the grass and the soul of the dog passes away. I'm sorry uh, for those of you who are dog owners. But the soul of the human person in its intellectual capacity and function, as Aristotle says, gives hope to something more that survives death. Now, this principle of the immortality of the human soul, I'm afraid, is where I see that I'm about to go very far off the designated path of poetry and human nature. And it's one of those things that we can talk about in the question and answer. Um, but I'm afraid we should just have to um, take it as an assumption for the moment. That is, that the intellectual capacity of the soul partakes in something that is immortal. Um, so, but, and if you're too shy to ask any questions, you can go to Aristotle's De Anima, uh, which is his short treatise on the soul. It takes you about an hour to read. You could go, unfortunately, I see they've, they've kicked out the roastery here. So I guess you can get a, a nasty Starbucks coffee and sit outside and, and read Aristotle for an hour. And then you'll know all about the soul. You'll also know about all the other crazy ideas about the soul they used to have. All right. So this is uh, still not a very good definition of the human person. We have a body and a soul. All living beings have a body and a soul. Now we find out that this soul is also a spirit. That is, it has an intellect. To rest the whole of our definition of the human person on this distinction is hazardous, though, since the intellect is not the whole of the human being. Right? Take a second and realize that. Good, you've just used your intellect. And indeed, at least in the Catholic, Orthodox, and many other intellectual traditions, there already are a whole class of beings in whom the essence is concentrated in the intellect. I'm speaking, of course, about angels, beings of pure spirit, intellect, and will. Since this would be a very poor talk for the Thomistic Institute, if I did not include a bit of Thomas, I'm going to rely on him here to succinctly do all my dirty work about explaining what angels are through his argument on that. So he says in Article 1 of Question 50 in the first part of the Summa, what is principally intended by God and creatures is good, and this consists in assimilation to God himself. And the perfect assimilation of an effect to a cause is accomplished when the effect imitates the cause according to that whereby the cause produces the effect. That is, heat produces heat. Now, God produces the creature by his intellect and will. Hence, the perfection of the universe require that there should be intellectual creatures. That's a big assumption, so let's, let's get that one right there, right? The perfection of the universe require that there should be intellectual creatures. Now, intelligence cannot be the action of a body, nor of any corporeal faculty. 
For every body is limited to here and now. Hence, the perfection of the universe requires the existence of an incorporeal creature, that is, a creature without a body. The ancients, however, not properly realizing the force of intelligence and failing to make a proper distinction between sense and intellect, though that nothing existed in the world but what could be apprehended by sense and imagination. And because bodies fall under imagination, they supposed that no being existed except bodies, as the philosopher, and, and here he means Aristotle, right? Again, you, you, he's like, you know, like all of us, right? When you get to know someone really well, you just call them by their nickname, right? Aristotle to Aquinas is always the philosopher. As the philosopher observes, thence came the error of the Sadducees who said that there was no spirit. But the very fact that intellect is above sense is a reasonable proof that there are some incorporeal things comprehensible by the intellect alone. And I don't really have to, to prove this to you about angels. I can prove this to you about numbers, right? That is, the existence of the number five doesn't depend on, on my five fingers, right? If I uh, famously, you guys are familiar with this, this wonderful Robert Frost poem, uh, The Buzzsaw, right? It's a horrific poem in many ways. The child does not pay attention when the dinner bell rings and he has his hand lopped off, right? Uh, right? The, the dinner bell rang and said, dinner, and the buzzsaw agreed, right? And it too ate. Anyway, uh, horrible poem uh, to bring up, but go look it up. But the point is that the existence of the number five is incorporeal. That is, if for some reason I were to lose one of my fingers, it's not that five would cease to exist. All right, so let's go back to the human person, though, and let's talk about this weird amalgam, right, where intellect, body, and soul meet. So this definition in Aquinas brings me back to Aristotle and one of his three foundational definitions of the human person. It is the definition incorporated today in the modern taxonomic definition of humanity. That is, today we're known as homo sapiens. That is, uh, the human person, the knower. To Aristotle, the human person is distinguished from other animal life by its possession of reason. As Aristotle would say, logon ekon, as he puts it in the Nicomachean Ethics. Reason or intelligence goes beyond mere sensory input and processing. You weigh and consider that sensory input, or if we look to the etymology of intelligence, right? The etymology of intelligence is that you can read between the lines, right? Inter and lego, right? A, a creature capable of intelligence looks between and beyond sensory phenomena to this insensible options, right? So, so again, I observe my hand, I observe something else that is numbered in five, and so I posit this nonsensible right, thing, right? So you might teach a dog to sit. You can teach a dog to, to fetch a paper, to shake your hand. But you cannot teach your dog basic algebra, much less calculus. For numbers, while instantiated in particulars, right, do not depend upon the instance. So let's talk about logos here, right? right? Logos does not just mean reason. It is also words or speech. In the Christian context, from the preface of the Gospel of John, this takes on new meaning. There we learn that the second person of the Trinity is the Logos. God as spirit creates through intelligence and will. This is the magic power of words. You find this in the first book of Genesis. God is not a creator like a carpenter who borrows his materials. The physical world is literally sung or spoken into being, and our possession of speech in some way more perfectly images the creator 
then the accidental possession in our body of two kidneys or the fact that I have nostrils, right? It's not like you admire the nostrils of another human being and saying, my, how you image the creator, right? But, right, if you teach a man to sing, right, if you teach a woman to play, right, these are in some ways more perfect imagings of the, the incorporeal spiritual nature of God. So I have five children, and I'm going to take you a second to remind you uh, that from about the ages of one to four, all children know something that perhaps I'm only now making present to you in your memory, that all words have the magic power of creation. This is why me and my wife in the kitchen will have to spell out certain words, C-O-O-K-I-E, or did you pick up the I-C-E-C-R-E-A-M, right? Because that may be nine o'clock in the morning, and we certainly don't want a child eating ice cream at nine o'clock in the morning. I don't know how you run your household or intend to. Um, so there are certain implications if we to continue to follow this through for the idea that poetry is the perfection of logos in the human person. Um, but I'm afraid we have uh, two other definitions, and that's it, I promise, two other definitions and I'll be done, right, of the human person. So I wanna turn now and talk about poetry as a political act. So the second definition of man from Aristotle, equally famous today, is that the human being is to politikon zoon, the political animal a definition he gives fitting, fittingly enough in his politics. What Aristotle means by this is nothing like what we conceive of it today. Aristotle does not mean that we naturally fall into a two-party system or that we share memes on Facebook regarding masking or vaccination policies, right? That's political perhaps today, but that's not what Aristotle means by politics. For those living 200 years from now who stumble upon this recording, uh, I'll just say that you might look up the uh, phrase COVID-19 in whatever search engine exists and then find out what we're living through. So what Aristotle means by uh, politics is that we belong in community. If you really want to get into this, uh, come meet me after the talk and we can discuss uh, Alexander de Tocqueville, Robert Nisbet, and, and the list goes on of great thinkers that you should talk about who talk about uh, the scale of human community. But part of the reason we suffer today is because the size of our polis is too large. Our city is a nation and we no longer uh, belong to our cities, right? Uh, at least as best we may have a small community in our church, maybe an extended family that meets more than once a month. But for centuries, for millennia, the human person lived in a large nexus, a social net of intermediary communities. There was not just your Bible study, there was your sporting club, your drinking club. Without Netflix, you'd meet and tell stories on the porch and before that, around the hearth fire, not over Zoom, right? Even if that's one of your backgrounds is a hearth fire. Uh, you had your peers, uh, you had your familial elders, you didn't just have temporary colleagues all at the mercy of the boss, but you had a guild of craftsmen, of fellows, of laborers, all sharing the good and bad of your common profession. But if we go back to my friend Joseph Pieper and his definition of leisure, we should also add the addendum that the political nature of the human person does not have as its end almost anything that we can typically conceive of as politics. The ultimate end of our association politically with each other is not utilitarian. It's not even for good fellowship. The human person was not, uh, the human person was meant to praise and rejoice together. A board meeting or town hall vote, uh, sorry, or a town hall vote on school board elections is not more political and in some ways is much less political as properly understood than a neighborhood barbecue. 
The first is utilitarian, the second is communitarian. But further still, uh, Joseph Pieper would argue, and I argue, that festival and holiday are the truest forms of leisure and political life. So we're entering into the season of May, and as for those of you who are, are Catholic, right, this is, you're gonna see May crowning, right? A procession of sacred images, gathering as a community to worship. Uh, like Mary breaking the jar and pouring oil over Jesus, these acts of political life defy utility that any modern Judas would make of our use of time. And how then are we to worship? How do we make holiday? What is the perfection of human leisure when shared in common? Do we sit in separate corners and read theological treatises? And I'm also afraid to ask, the answer is not even you sitting here so patiently for nearly the past hour listening to this guy bloviating, right? That is still not leisure in some truest essential. No, those activities of contemplation are, I would argue, equally useless in the good sense that useless things are things that are good in and of themselves. These activities are contemplation, but they are not perfection in the political nature of the human person. So I would turn then to poetry and song in the communal act, not reading a book of poetry by yourself, right, but reciting it together. That is synonymous, I would measure in some ways, with uh, contemplation. It's that, that contemplation, I would argue, and go further, and, and perhaps here's where you can tackle me off the podium, uh, par excellence, right? This is what we are being asked to do by St. Augustine, right? Sing to the Lord a new song, right? And that is, the lover sings. And so this eschatological vision, right, of what poetry fits into in the human person. The last thing, and I see I'm going to have to sort of condense it here uh, as, as the time keeps ticking, is the definition of, uh, that Aristotle gives to the human person, which is perhaps arguably the, the most forgotten definition of the human person. Uh, so in, uh, in his uh, poet, poetics, right? Uh, and actually, I'm going to bring the, the quote up, up here, right? Um, just a little bit of Greek for my, my friend back there in the back who knows his Greek, right? So in the poetics, there's this definition of, of the human person, uh, and it's English there too, you can read that, just as good, but please go learn some Greek, um, that Aristotle gives to the human person. And he says, right, that the way the human person differs from the other animals is because it is the most mimetic creature, and it's through this capacity for mimesis that the human person is able to learn, right? And so uh, in the Christian life, this call to discipleship in some ways, is a call to mimesis, an imitation, right? Of course, that the, the most famous treatise besides the Bible, right, of course, is the imitatio Christi, the imitation of Christ. And so all of us, in some ways, are called to discipleship and to mimesis. And I want to um, give a, a, looking at the time, a quick definition of mimesis, if you don't understand what I'm saying, right? Mimesis is the human cap capacity to imitate. But when I imitate, I both make same and other, right? Think of... Um, uh, you know, the, the, the great comedians who do personifications of our political or, or uh, public figures, right? That is, they're not going to do a, a faithful reproduction. In some ways, they have to take and amplify and caricature certain features to bring out and teach you something about that, right? So if I did, oh gosh, my, my mind draws a blank here, right? For some reason, I'm just thinking of a, a George Bush, original George Bush, right? Read my lips. We don't want to do that. Um, 
but what that's going to do is you actually go back and listen to that person. It's not what they sound like at all, right? But what it does is it teaches us something by its imitation, right? As you've noticed, I'm from New Jersey. I talk with my hands. You can go tomorrow and tell your friends about this talk. One of the things that's not uh, captured in the recording, of course, is loss, is the, the sign language the New Jerseyans use to emphasize points, right? I think it was more like ancient Romans in that sense. But you can go to your friends and you can imitate the way that I talk with my hands. But obviously, it's going to be a caricature in some sense. But in some ways, you're learning from me and you're showing me something more. And this is what poetry does, right? And poetry then is this, this art, right, this craft. And it's not focused on, you know, sort of that romantic image of the poet as operating away from society. For those of you who, who, could, who have the resources and you're here at KU, please go look in the stacks for examples of ancient Greek poetry. And there you'll see always the poet as sort of a central figure in the life of that community. You can look in the Eastern traditions as well in Japan and you see that the praise poet or, or these other things are all sort of central to that. And, and I wanna take a second, um, and again, again, I, I am conscious of the time and your, your patience, but to talk about um, mimesis and memory and salvation, that is, the, the role of poetry as uh, Christian practice for and participation in the eternal acts, right? That is uh, the centerpiece of divine worship of the Eucharist, right? And the mass. And of course, all that central point in the mass is do this in remembrance of me. The Psalms there are the songs that we sing. We sing to the angels in the glory, right? With them in glory, right? Sanctus, 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 holy, holy, holy. Right? We're repeating these songs, right? Um, and so all of these things are ways of teaching us. And in some ways, poetry is like the Eucharist, right? The Eucharist is that meal where instead of you eating, you are eaten, you are consumed, right? And poetry and memory is that thing that's like that as well. When I recited earlier today the words of Father Hopkins, what I had done and what you had done is we had yielded up of our bodies, right? Our time, our intelligence, our senses, and we'd given them over to another person. We'd emptied out our souls, and in an act of magnanimity, we had allowed someone else to live through us, and we interpreted and lived with them. And this is the beautiful thing about poetry and its ability to, to teach you magnanimity in the other virtues, more so, I would argue, in some ways than the other contemplative acts of philosophy and theology, because they habituate this virtue of self-abnegation and they also habituate the theological virtue or the receptiveness, I should preface it, right? Don't not go too far, Callahan, in your presumptions. A receptiveness to love, right? That is, there are some poems, which obviously are scurrilous poems and doggerel and, and really aren't going to improve you except for so much as the fact that you're improving your, the faculties of your intelligence, right? And the, the capacity for memory. But there are other poems uh, such as Pied Beauty, which is the poem I recited at the beginning of this, which are these moments where we fail for words, right? An act of utter humiliation, humiliation, right? That you recognize that you don't have the words, someone else has the words, and poetry and song in some way, we've all had that moment, right? Perhaps where we're reciting common words with each other in common. And, uh, for those of you who've ever been at a, a poorly attended mass or service, right? And suddenly you're the only one trying to do the, the things that you're supposed to recite and you, your memory drops, right? We have a sort of communal memory that functions and poetry kicks into. And so what I would reflect upon in the end is that in both 
possessing logos in both our political life and in both our ability to imitate, right? Poetry there is the contemplative act that best is, uh, now I had said necessity, and actually I, I, I did proofread and check what I had said with, with Aquinas on, on necessities of the human soul and poetry. And he says it's not necessary, but it's congruent. And what he means by that is that it's the thing that, that just clicks, that it just fits, right? These other things, you can make them work, but this is like the Lego piece that just snaps together. Sorry, again, I have little children, so my metaphors are drawn from this life. It just fits and it clicks and it works so beautifully. And this is what we're promised, right? Again, you go back and read the book of Revelation, right? This is the thing that we're going to do, right? Uh, get used to poetry, right? Because if, you, if, if heaven is where you're destined for, it's what you're going to be doing for not just a very long time, but for all eternity. So thank you very much.